This message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. blessed to know that you have a plan and a purpose for us. Lord, not only for our, our lives, but for today, for this morning, Lord, things you are saying and, and wanting us to hear and, and be responsive to this morning. We say thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you. Amen. Amen. just want to read to you from um, Psalm 74. Um, we're going to continue our, our um, exploration of um, some of the ancient boundary stones. And Psalm 74, verse 15 says, it was, it was you, Lord, who opened up springs and streams and dried up the ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. And uh, on the screen behind me is, is a verse from Proverbs which says, Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your ancestors. And what we're doing over these coming months is looking at some of the ancient boundary stones of, of belief and truth and doctrine um, and especially those, those things which, in these days, men are trying to shift. Um, we, we, just to recap from a couple of weeks ago, uh, how many were here two weeks ago when we, when we introduced this? Thank you. Um, we, we looked at the fact that God sets boundaries in creation itself. I just read a psalm which talks about God establishing day and night uh, seasons. God sets boundaries in creation itself and, and orders and established things. And we'll come on to many of those in the weeks to come. Uh, we must beware meddling with the things God has established in creation. God sets boundaries of freedom. And uh, right in the beginning, the book of Genesis, every, everything begins in Genesis. And we'll, we'll go there again today in a number of, a number of occasions. But God, God sets boundaries to our freedom. He says to Adam and Eve, you're free to eat from anything uh, except that one tree. Adam and Eve were free, but there were limits. God sets boundaries even in our inheritance. So that when, um, when he took, take the, took the people into the promised land, they were, there were clear boundaries for each of the tribes. And um, God wants us to enjoy our inheritance, but he wants us to share it together and there are boundaries around each of us. Our limits, our extents, our gifts, all the good things God has for us. And God, and this is important, and especially for us, I believe, in these days, God sets boundaries on our revelation. So in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the Lord says, the, re the revealed things belong to men, but the secret things belong to the Lord. And um, it's... It's intriguing and it's very securing to know that there are mysteries that belong to God. And uh, we won't know everything. We'd love to, wouldn't we? That's the intriguing bit. We'd love to discover more. He's, 
He's, he's given us, uh, we're made in the image of God. We, we want to discover more. We want to explore more. But God has some secret things that belong to him, some mysteries. Today, these boundary stones, many, many, many important ancient boundary stones are being shifted. And uh, amongst other things, uh, these are all, all based on, on, a, on a, an attack upon the authority of Scripture. So that um, the meaning of, of hell is under great attack. Whether there's such a thing, such a place, whether there's such a reality as hell, whether or not all men will be saved. Uh, universalism, a belief that everybody ultimately will be saved. There's an attack on the, on the nature of grace and many high-profile preachers preaching a message of grace which goes beyond, um, beyond what the Scriptures tell us and elevates the grace of God above his other characteristics like his holiness and his, his demand for obedience. There is a, a very high-profile attack of, upon the nature of marriage, whether marriage is between a man or a woman, and a woman or not. Um, upon prosperity, what, the, what, what is a proper biblical, balanced view of prosperity, and, um, and on many other things. And, and over the coming weeks, we will... Well, I say weeks. might be months. <laughs> Who knows? Um, there's a root behind all this, and in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1, Paul writes to Timothy, because in many ways none of this is new, and says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. The upshots of these shifts, Paul also says this, by abandoning Orthodox things, some have shipwrecked their faith. And uh, in Job 24, verse 2, there's a very telling verse that says, those, there are those who move boundary stones and they pasture flocks they have stolen. By changing or, or, or shifting um, what we know to be true, we can't, you can't change truth. By shifting boundary stones, um, false teachers will begin to pasture people who belong to the Lord, who've effectively, they've, they've stolen from God's boundaries. In um, Titus chapter 2 verse 1, Paul speaks to his other, his other young, young disciple, um, and he says, you are, as for you, he says, as for you, and he's just talked about, in Titus chapter 2, he's talked about what's, what false teachers are teaching and, um, and the impact of those things, and he says, but as for you, you must teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. And, and the word he uses for sound doctrine is a, is a lovely word which, from which we get the English word hygiene. You must teach what's in accordance with healthy, wholesome, hygienic, clean, uncorrupted, good, uh, good doctrine that is for our well-being. You must teach those things. And uh, you'll be glad to know that is our stance as elders in the church. We want to teach things that will keep us clean and healthy. Sound doctrine is never, um, is never restrictive or gloomy or negative or outdated or uncontemporary. Sound doctrine is always 
life-giving, liberating, positive, affirming, pure, and full of hope, and it's very, very good for us. Amen? When it comes to this new series, if you just put the, this, um, the next one up for you, there we go. Um, I, I said a couple of weeks ago, and, and I thought about this, I didn't plan to say this, but sometimes the Lord just speaks, sometimes, always, hopefully, the Lord speaks through the preachers. Sometimes you say things you'd not considered, and I said this, I believe this will be one of the most important series we've ever taught in the church. And the more I've thought about that, the more I, the more I realize that's true. This will be the most important series of teaching we've ever taught and will secure us uh, now and for years to come. And um, as we talked um, together a few weeks ago in just thinking about these, planning these things um, as elders, we said, you know, the goals of this series, if we could accomplish these three things, we'd feel we've accomplished something, is that every one of us will be able to say, when we've taught on these big doctrines... First of all, I understand it. That's a good, that would be a good start. I understand it. Secondly, um, I know how to outwork it. That's important. And thirdly, I want my friends to experience it. So we're going to, minute, in a minute, begin to talk about what we mean by covenant. And uh, have those things, those things in mind. Maybe we, maybe we won't accomplish them all this morning. Uh, some of those will take some of these things, especially the outworking, might take some time. But, but our goal is for all of us to say, "I understand it. I know how to outwork it, and and I really want my friends to experience this with me." All right. So these are days for us to um, stand out, stand apart, stand up strong. And stand firm and do not apologize for being biblical, orthodox, firm and secure. Amen. Amen. Covenant. This is where I think we we must start. There are some um, there are some great vast themes that run through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Um, There are several of them, and this is why, if I can really encourage you to read, especially the opening chapters of the book of Genesis over this time, and and see how God settled things. So, for example, in Genesis, we have, right at the beginning, a theme emerges, which we will call the kingdom of God. God tasks Adam and Eve with bringing his, his kingdom onto earth as it is in heaven. He says you're to rule and subdue. You're to bring everything on earth into line with what is already the case in heaven, where God rules and subdues all things. His dominion is is total in heaven. And Adam and Eve were to express and bring his dominion on earth just as it is in heaven. There's a theme that emerges in the book of Genesis of a river that begins in the Garden of Eden and flows all the way through time and the Bible and and the expression of God's purpose until you find the river in the book of Revelation. And it's a river of life. And in the book of Revelation, there are 
uh, there are trees by the river. Maybe this is Ezekiel, which, who paints a similar description. But there's, there's, there's trees by the river that are bearing fruit every month because the water of the river is carrying so much life in it. There's a river of life which is, a, which is part of God's purpose. There is in Genesis a family is formed. Adam and Eve come together. This is why a man shall leave his father and mother and be married to his wife. A family, and God's purpose is established there. God wants one family under one father. That's a theme that runs all the way through the Bible. Another theme that emerges in Genesis and completes in Revelation is is the theme of a bride, a marriage. This is why this thing is established in creation. There's a marriage in Genesis of a man and a woman. And in Revelation, there's a marriage of the son with his bride, the church. So these, these great themes are all ways of expressing the purpose of God. But there's another theme which emerges in Genesis and completes in Revelation, and it's the theme of covenant. And covenant is not so much the purpose of God as as the means by which God will achieve his purpose. Covenant covenant is is, um, not the end in itself, is the means that God will achieve his ends. And what I mean by that is, those purposes of God will be worked out as we live in covenant relationship with God and with one another. Alex trying to describe and define some of these words in a moment. But that's why this topic, this truth, this boundary stone matters so much. It's vital that we grasp and understand and embrace and live out the practices the principles, the practices, the ways and the means of covenant. And this is not a dry academic study. It's a sensational, dynamic, apostolic truth. And it will shape our lifestyle and our actions and our words and our relationships and our family life and our work life. What is covenant? Well, if you were to look that word up in a, in a dictionary, it would, it would tell you it's something like this. It's, um, it's a coming together. It's a mutual understanding between usually two or more parties. An agreement. Um, often it's something quite formal, a legal agreement. Uh, William and Rosanna last week made a marriage covenant and a registrar was present because something legal was happening. There was something formal about it. It's um, a contract drawn up by a deed, the dictionary will tell you. It's a a promise in writing, something like that, a covenant. But the biblical concept is much bigger. And um, there's a couple of words, you didn't worry too much about these. The Hebrew word is the word berith, berit. And it means a covenant, an alliance, a pledge, a treaty, a pact, a compact and the equivalent Greek word is that word diatheke, has a similar meaning. But here's the great key for us. In these big biblical covenants, which we will mention in a moment and, and, and show you them and name them, these are not so much established by, by two parties, 
who come to an agreement together. The great biblical covenants are established by God. He is the covenant maker. He sets the terms. This is not a negotiation between us and the Lord. Let's make an agreement, God. God has established the terms of the covenant. And he draws us into it. So um, if you, uh, some of you will be familiar with Vine's Dictionary. And he makes this comment. In contradistinction, that's already confusing me, to the English word covenant, which signifies a mutual undertaking between two parties or more, each binding himself to fulfill obligations, diatheke does not in itself contain the idea of joint obligation. It mostly signifies an obligation undertaken by a single person. Okay? We'll try and explain that more as we go along. So biblical covenants, it's not like, it's not like William and Rosanna who, who, who sort of jointly agreed to something and, and, and sealed the deal last Saturday. Biblical covenants are established by one person. His name is God Almighty. He's established some boundary stones around our lives and covenant is one of them. And he invites us in to be partners with him in this covenant. And he enables us to keep it. We'll come on to that. It's all very wonderful. (laughs) Biblical covenants um, typically have three characteristics to them. I'll show you some of these as we go along. Words. So that promises are made. Terms are set out. Oaths might be made. By the way, there are biblical covenants made between individuals. There's some of those as well, but I'm going to focus on those that God establishes. As well as words, covenants are characterized by blood. They involve death or sacrifice. And thirdly, covenants have a seal, a sign, a token, a a, a reminder. This is to remind you of the covenant, God might say. Let me read you this little definition. Um, A covenant may be defined as a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. Life and death are at stake in the divine covenants. God has bound himself to humans and them to himself. You see that? God has bound himself to humans and them to him. God's acting on both our parts. God has bound himself to us and he's bound us to him. In its most essential aspect... A covenant is that which binds people together. Nothing lies closer to the heart of the biblical concept of covenant than the imagery of a bond inviolable. A bond that cannot be broken. And let me just say this. I don't know whether... I I, I was listening out for it. You probably wouldn't have been. This is what God's been speaking about this morning. I've made a bond with you that will never be broken. You know, all our theology, if it's good theology, must begin in God. Theology from above. 
We don't, we don't make up theology to describe things on earth. Our theology begins in God. And if you, if you hear or see or, or are aware of theology that you can't see in God, it's probably worth questioning it. But covenant begins in God. And um, we have in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit expressing divine harmony, covenant relationship. There is in the Godhead love. There is in the Godhead order, headship, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There is in the Godhead equal worth, but divine order. There is in the Godhead submission and honor. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together uh, out of their own, if I could put out of their own covenantal relationship. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit work together to accomplish things on earth. The Father initiates and originates and creates things. The Son mediates and reveals and manifests things. And the Spirit administrates, enacts, completes things. And when we look at the the major covenants in the Old Testament in just a moment, you'll see that all these Old Testament covenants point to the new covenant, which is founded on the word of the Father, the blood of the Son, and the seal of the Spirit. Word, blood, and seal, all expressed to us in the Godhead, who is himself living in divine covenant, a divine trinity, a covenantal relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. There are, um, there are a few more, but there are seven major covenants established by God to embrace men in a relationship with himself. Um, there is the covenant made in Eden, covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, Moses, David, and they all lead up to the new covenant. So let me just say something about each of these, and some, there's a pretty picture to change the, um, change the mood a bit behind me. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, just to say, we're not, going to, we're not going to turn and read so many scriptures today. Um, you, uh, can I encourage you to do this? But, but to get the grasp of these, we'll need to read quite long uh, chunks of scripture. So Genesis 1 and 2, you'll find God makes a covenant with Adam and Eve. I think it's in um, Hosea later on that, that what happens in Genesis is described with that word covenant. But this is, this is the covenant made with Adam and Eve, first of all, before the fall. And in this covenant, God declares his purpose in creation. Adam and Eve, Genesis 1, 28, are to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. And they are to eat. They're able to eat from any tree in the garden except one. 
And um, maybe there's even some blood there because Eve is taken later on out of Adam's side. God performs some divine surgery. And there's certainly a sign of the covenant. It's the tree of life. Which Adam could have eaten from. Adam could have eaten from that tree and lived forever. But he chose the one tree he was prohibited from eating. So we can call this the covenant of creation. And in this covenant, Adam is, if you like, he's, on, he's put on probation. God establishes a covenant to test Adam's faith and obedience. To test Adam's ability to covenant keep, to keep a covenant. And we're introduced then to the person of Satan in the form of a serpent who's on a mission whose aim is to break the covenant relationship that's been established by God with Adam and Eve. Satan's aim is to break that relationship. Satan's aim is to rob man of the covenant blessings and to put the man under the covenant's curse, which is death. God said, if you eat from that tree, you will surely die. And Satan comes along, and his, his whole aim and intent is to cause Adam to do the one thing that God has said he's not to do. And Satan's strategy is to deceive Eve. That's quite difficult to say. Deceive Eve by attacking the terms, the words, the promises of the covenant. Did God really say God had established a covenant. He'd spoken some words. The terms of the covenant. And Satan comes along to question the terms, the words of the covenant. Did God really say? You will not surely die. God knows you'll be like God. He comes to misinterpret, to lie, to deceive Eve. I I hope you realize the significance of what I'm saying. Here it is in Genesis. To question the word of God and convince Eve that God didn't really mean what he said. He just, you'll be like him, that's all, Eve. And Adam fell. The covenant was broken. But God came in grace to restore Adam back to a covenant relationship. It's incredible, isn't it? The second major covenant, we we call it the the covenant of redemption in Genesis 3. And here God makes a second covenant with Adam and Eve, this now after the fall, to express God's purpose in judging and redeeming man and in judging and cursing Satan. Satan. And this second covenant, and I'm, I'm just covering these very briefly because I think we might go back to some of these in, in, in weeks to come. This covenant of redemption is the first now in a series, another, another um, five of these covenants that will all be expressions of God redeeming and restoring man back to his original 
purpose. God spoke to us this morning about his grace, his great grace. The third um, major covenant would be the one with Noah in Genesis um, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And um, this is the covenant made with Noah after, uh, with no, well, made with Noah and made with creation. When you read the terms of this covenant, God makes the covenant with creation and with Noah. And he makes it after the flood. And essentially, he restates and he amplifies the things he said to Adam and Eve before the fall in Eden. So if you look at Genesis 9, you'll see God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And he goes on to talk about some other things. He's restating the very things he said to Adam before the fall. This is a fresh start with a new man. And God promises that he will no longer flood the earth. And um, blood is shed. There's a burnt offering sacrificed by Noah. And a sign is established. There's a rainbow in the sky as the sign of the covenant that God has said never again will he flood the earth in that way. It's the covenant of preservation. Okay? And then uh, we move on to Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. You'll see God makes a covenant with Abraham. And the terms of this covenant, which we will call a covenant of promise, he restates with Isaac and with Jacob and with other of the descendants. And it's essentially a covenant to bless Abraham and that Abraham will be a blessing that all nations will be blessed through him, that Abraham will multiply and fill. There's a bit of a recurring theme here. God wants his people to multiply and fill the earth. He says, Abraham, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. I want you to fill the earth. And as he makes the covenant, Abraham is to cut an animal in two. Blood is shed. And then Abraham walks between the the two halves of this cut animal and and God gives Abraham a sign of the covenant. It's circumcision. Shall be the sign of the covenant. And then when you come into the book of Exodus, right through Exodus 20 and onwards, you see God makes a covenant with Moses. And this is an interesting one. This This is the covenant of law. It doesn't sound much like grace. But God makes a covenant with Moses and, and, and establishes three types of law. There's, a, first of all, a moral law, Ten Commandments, a moral law. And then there is a lot of civil law, the way, the, the way society was to be ordered, the way the nation was to behave. And then thirdly, there's a whole load of ceremonial laws which have to do with approaching God in, in the holy place and the... the the way the the priests and the Levites are to minister and the the types of sacrifices and and offerings the people are to make. And this Mosaic covenant, this covenant of law, is designed, I think, for two reasons. Firstly, to establish Israel, God's people, as a nation set apart. It regulates their life. It keeps them clean. A lot of the 
a lot of the, uh, the provisions about mildew and boils and sores and all the things the elders had to do in those days, inspect people's stuff, you know. It sounds weird. It was to keep them clean. If somebody is unclean, he's outside the camp for a week, then he can come back. It's to keep God's people clean. Hygienic. The second reason God established this covenant with them was to show them the hopelessness of trying to keep a covenant of law and works and self-effort without, without a heart that was changed. The heart of the problem was the problem of the heart. And then there's a, a sixth covenant made with David, a covenant of the kingdom. And um, in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David victory over his enemies, successes on his throne, and a kingdom established forever. A covenant of the kingdom. So there's lots of interesting study we could do there. All those covenants were broken by men. Adam ate the forbidden fruit. Noah's sons became sinful and, and, and murder became part of the human experience. Abraham's family didn't stay faithful. Israel repeatedly broke the law. I'll come back to that. Even David's kingdom was divided and torn in two. But God had an unchanging plan and purpose. One family, one people, one nation, one kingdom, the earth filled with men in his image, establishing his kingdom, carrying his life, the flow of life, the river of life, maturing as a bride ready for his son. God's purpose was unchanged. And it all led the way to the marvelous new covenant. Woo! The marvelous, wonderful, glorious new covenant which, if you like, was established with the twelve around the Last Supper table, but really with all believers. And now God's given us a new heart. He's written His law on our hearts. His promises and blessings are ours in Christ. This is the covenant of fulfillment. The words of the Father, the blood of the Son, and the seal of the Spirit... The Father has promised our present blessings, our future inheritance. The Son has died and risen again and forgiven us, done all that's necessary to forgive us from all sin. And the Spirit has filled us and baptized us and empowered us to live out a new covenant life. This is all right, isn't it? Yeah. Folks, we need to see the Bible not as a series of dispensations in which God, deal, God has, a, has a different, distinct purpose in each and deals with people in different ways. It's not a series of dispensations. It's a book of covenants. And each covenant builds upon its, its predecessors. The major biblical covenants provide, I'm quoting here, a progressive revelation of the purposes of God in creation and redemption. God has never dealt with man on any basis other than the basis of covenant. Let me read a, a great scripture, which uh, I tried to fit it on the screen. 
There you go. You can uh, read it through. This is lovely. You might want to close your eyes, actually. There is a deep, vast river, a mainstream of revelation, which flows through God's word. This mainstream is the flow of God's ongoing covenantal revelation. It actually begins, as all rivers do, in the mountain of God's eternal purposes concerning man. And then under the melting sunlight of God's love and grace, it began to flow down to earth. It has been flowing on and on through the Edenic, Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New Covenants. The New Covenant brings the river of God's covenantal revelation into the sea of fulfillment, and thus the river returns to the place from where it came. The cycle of covenantal revelation, which was the everlasting covenant, is now complete. I wish I'd written that. (laughs) What I'm trying to say here is this. God has one purpose expressed in increasing degrees of revelation. He has one purpose. Scripture shows us a series of successive covenants, each one building on the one before. Hallelujah. I, um, I want to draw things towards a close by referring now to especially to two keys of, of, a, of, of, of the living, dynamic new covenant. The new covenant is living. And there are two things I, I really believe God wants us to see this morning. I'm even more convinced, having heard what he said to us earlier on. The first is this, that the heartbeat of covenant is relationship. When God makes his covenants, when God made his covenants, and now in his making of the new covenant, he's established a relationship with us. When Jesus came, he was was given the name Emmanuel. It means God is with us. God is with us. That's, 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 if you like, that's the tagline of every covenant. God is with us. God is with us. He, by, by um, the, the bringing in of his kingdom, the flow of his river of life, the, the unity of the, of the family, the maturing of the bride, those big, ultimate, vast purposes of God, all require us to live in right relationship with him through covenant. Here's another quote. How remarkable it is that a great God would stoop not only to create finite analogies of himself, but that he would condescend still further to establish a partnership with them, commissioning them to exercise his own righteous and generous reign over the rest of creation. I'm going to read that again. How remarkable it is that a great God would stoop 
not only to create finite analogies of himself, but that he would condescend still further to establish a partnership with them, commissioning them, commissioning us, to exercise his own righteous and generous reign over the rest of creation. God has made a covenant with us because he wants a relationship with us. And hear this this morning, friends. God does not tolerate you. He loves you. He doesn't put up with you. He doesn't accommodate you. He doesn't make a bit of space for you. He loves you. He embraces you. He's totally for you. He's drawn you into his plan. He's embraced you in his purposes. He's reached out to involve you and I in establishing his kingdom, in being part of the flow of his river of life, in the growth and unity of his family and the the perfecting of the bride. God has embraced us in his purposes. He wants us to live out our life, our purpose, our destiny in close, committed, covenant relationship with him. He's made a covenant with us. He's spoken promises. He's shed his blood. He's sealed us with his spirit. We're embraced by a a bond in blood, sovereignly administers, a bond inviolable. He will never break his bond. He will never leave us or forsake us. He's a covenant-keeping God. And inside his new covenant, we experience his loyalty his faithfulness, his commitment. There is no better, safer, more life-giving place to be. And he wants us to live out our relationships with one another in the light of that relationship with him. To express and experience covenant relationships that are also for us characterized by loyalty, faithfulness, commitment. So that we could say of our relationships, you know what, there's no better people, more life-giving, there's no safer, more life-giving people to be with than us. I understand it. I know how to outwork it. I want my friends to experience it. The heartbeat of covenant is relationship. And the lifeblood of covenant is something called hesed. How many of you have heard that word? Mary? (laughs) You heard that word. How many of you have experienced that word? Hesed is a small word with a vast meaning. It's It's a word commonly used in the Bible. Um, the word, it, 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 it's used nearly 130 times just in the Psalms. And um, you'll find it's translated as often uh, loving kindness. Or the NIV, sadly, just calls it love. The New Living Translation, I think, calls it often unfailing love. Uh, it's the Old Testament equivalent of the word agape. It's covenant love. And I'm going to take a few minutes to try and describe this word to you to the best of my ability. 
It speaks of God's gracious love and his unbelievable loyalty within the bonds of a covenant. It reveals God's heart towards us. In fact, I read this quote, without the word hesed, the Bible is a dead book in which, no, in which there is no revelation of God at all. Okay, that's how big this word is, in this man's opinion. Without the word hesed, the Bible is a dead book in which is no revelation of God at all. Hesed, in all its various shades and meanings, is conditional, conditional upon there being a covenant. And don't get lost in this, but this is really important. Without the prior existence of a covenant, there could be no hesed. The word represents that attitude to a covenant without which the covenant could not continue to exist. It has no meaning apart from a covenant previously instituted. I'm quoting somebody here. And it is always conditioned by the terms of the covenant. Hesed is the means of the covenant's continuance. If I could put it this way, the new covenant continues to exist because of God's hesed. You know there's that verse in Colossians which says he sustains the universe. There's words God speaks that sustain things. The covenant of God is sustained, only exists because God is expressing towards us his hesed, his great covenant love. It's a very specific word. Let me again quote to you, this is the best I can do. The root of the word means eagerness, steadfastness, and then mercy, loving kindness, but all within the covenant. It never means kindness to all and sundry. It's a covenant word. And unless this close connection with the idea of the covenant is realized, the true meaning of hesed can never be understood. The word means faithfulness rather than kindness. For we find the word to involve in almost every case a substratum of fixed, determined, almost stubborn steadfastness. Stubborn steadfastness. The best word is covenant love. The renderings, loving kindness, mercy, are often far too weak to convey the strength, the firmness, and the persistence of God's sure love. The most important of all the distinctive ideas of the Old Testament is God's steady and extraordinary persistence in continuing to love wayward Israel in spite of Israel's insistent waywardness. I, I know we really need to grasp this today. That God loves you with a stubborn steadfastness and with an extraordinary persistence. His hesed towards you means he will never let you go. He's chosen to love you however wayward, disloyal, independent you've been or you might choose to be. 
He is stubborn in his steadfastness. And he's extraordinarily persistent in his love for you. In Luke 15, we have the story of a, of a wayward son who's ungrateful, who demands his inheritance, who wastes all that he's been given. But you know when that son turns back, his father is waiting with arms wide open, read, well, waiting to welcome him back, reinstate him as a son, put his feet under the table, serve up the best feast for him. It's an example of God's stubborn steadfastness and extraordinary persistence in loving us. In John 11, Lazarus has died. Jesus waits a few days. And then the stubborn steadfastness, the extraordinary persistence, the depths, the power, the intense breakthrough characteristic of God's love is expressed as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It's a love that breaks through sickness and death to bring abundant life. In John 21, Peter has denied Jesus three times as if he didn't believe in it, as if he didn't believe Jesus anymore or believe in Jesus anymore. But Jesus has always believed in Peter. And way back, Jesus said to Simon, you are the rock. And Simon's life has been anything but rock-like at times, but Jesus still believes in him. Even when Peter speaks as if he doesn't believe in Jesus, and I'm not sure what's going on in his heart at that point, Jesus still believes in him. And the hesed of God is on display. As Jesus asks him three times, Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? Do you really love me? Simon, do you love me? The steadfast, uh, the, the stubborn steadfastness, the extraordinary persist- persistence reaches through to Simon Peter and lifts him up. I believe today God wants you to know that his hesed is towards you. It's his covenant love in action. He's drenched you with his grace and his mercy. He's always believed in you. Some of you need to hear that. He's always believed in you. He's never going to break his bond. It's a bond inviolable. There's a stubborn steadfastness about his love towards you. There's an extraordinary persistence in the way he's loved you. He's never, he's never stopped loving you. Whatever you choose, he's chosen to love you. Whatever you do, he's chosen to love you. Covenant really matters to us, folks, because it underpins and undergirds everything in life. How we relate to God, how God relates to himself, how we relate to God, how we relate to one another. Covenant really matters because God's covenant love changes everything, transforms us. Covenant really matters, especially in these days, because society falls apart when, man, when men abandon their faithfulness to God and their loyalty to one another. Covenant really matters because the postmodern epidemic 
of independence, personalization, isolation, loneliness are all the very opposites of covenant. Covenant really matters because we're here to declare and demonstrate that there is a better way of living. That living God's way, the covenant way, builds an alternative, firm, secure, fantastic, safe society. Covenant is our ancient boundary stone, set up for our great blessing and benefit. It's never to be moved or shifted as if we could or pushed around, but rather embraced, emphasized, adored, expressed, and lived out. I think over the coming weeks, we will look at why we needed a new covenant, maybe in a bit more detail. We'll look at the practicalities of covenant love, and we'll look at the nature of the marriage covenant and why that matters so much. I'm really looking forward to it. But I believe this morning God wants us to, God wants to minister to us, especially concerning his hesed. He wants us to be secure and firmly established and to be reassured and to know he will never break his bond. He's chosen to love you, to love me, to love us. He's brought us into a new covenant. It's not, we've not joined his club. We've not, we've not signed up, we've not even signed up to be in his army. He's brought us into a covenant relationship. Regulated by Hesed, covenant love. I hope, I, hope this is, I hope you've been able to grasp something of the enormity. I hope I've been able to do some justice to the way God wants us to experience him and relate to him and be loved by him. And consequently, the way we are to love one another. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, this morning I want to thank you that you love us and have expressed your love in in covenant with us and have forgiven us and embraced us and, and reinstated us and restored us and lifted us up. And Lord, we find ourselves the, the overwhelmed recipients of your covenant love. I want to pray, Lord, that the reality of the strength the overwhelming strength of your covenant love towards us, your hesed, your stubborn steadfastness, your extraordinary persistence, your choice to love us and to believe in us. I pray that we will receive fresh revelation of that this morning. Lord, it will affirm us afresh. It will cause us to glow with delight and to know our feet are on solid ground we love you Lord
we express back to you, Lord, our love for you. As Deborah prayed earlier on, Lord, so we pray, Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. We wish we could express our love the way you have, but within our limited ability, Lord, we say we love you with all our heart. Thank you, Lord, you've enabled us to keep our, keep our place in the covenant. You've given us new hearts and written your law upon them, and you no longer require us to be men and women who observe legal, a legal framework. But Lord, you've filled us with your spirit, yes. enabling us to live out the new covenant. Yes. And I want to pray this morning for any who especially need to know again or know for the first time your great covenant love. Yes. Holy Spirit, you will minister now in the, in the wonderful grace And the way that you do, Lord, you'll minister your covenant love to individuals here this morning. Thanks for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk.